Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Changing the Game with Industry 4.0 in the Intelligent Enterprise, presented by SAP. The best run SAP. You'll hear from the experts who know how to digitize and renew business models for better results in manufacturing businesses. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Bonnie in the house. Welcome, welcome, welcome. But we got a show for you today. Let's see what the buzz on the street is or the buzz. If nobody's on the street, it's buzzing somewhere in the Twitter sphere. Here we go. 85% of manufacturers consider the connected workforce, and that's in quotes, connected workforce, robots and humans working together, being routine in manufacturing by 2020. Oh, my goodness, we're here. An overwhelming majority of manufacturers now describe it as an essential element in their business strategy. This was a quote from blog.universal-robots.com. Don't write it down. Just think about it. Look it up. So what are we talking about today? Well, a replicator, oh, a la Star Trek, is still just speculative fiction. 3D printing is not. It's here. It's been around quite a few years and getting cheaper and more doable all the time. And the fourth industrial revolution is not something in the future. It's happening now. Industry 4.0, many of you may know, regular listeners to this series, it started with the concept of an intelligent factory. And now it's about designing and manufacturing intelligent products and assets and empowering employees to leverage the data from these products and assets to do what? They want to make prescriptive, predictive, and automated decisions across the entire supply chain. That's the concept. Use the data, be smart, do everything better. And then what? Now we have questions on the table. Let's look into the future, which could be five minutes from now. Is automation going to make human employment redundant? Oh, I shudder. Is the Skynet scenario, and those of you out there who know what that is, you'll understand, is the Skynet scenario the inevitable endpoint for artificial intelligence and maybe closer to home for all of us will our cars and refrigerators just spy on us or try to control our behaviors I said try I have a panel of two thought leaders they're influencers they're great thinkers they're great great futurists I'd like to say they're going to share their vision of industry 4.0 and industry 5.0 and I've been warned they may share some provocative opinions so everybody get ready welcome to i'm just going to call this industry 4.0 with game changers happy to be here bonnie d graham and now it's time for my two esteemed panelists to introduce themselves let's start with bob parker bob how are you and please in case there's one human being left on the planet who doesn't know who you are i know your reputation precedes you in a very good way please tell us what you do and what this topic means to you welcome bob Thanks, Bonnie. Uh, as uh, Bonnie said, I'm Bob Parker. I'm from IDC. I'm a senior vice president at IDC. Been there 15 years. Um, I'm responsible for our worldwide industry research across six industry segments, as well as our research in the enterprise software market, artificial intelligence, and professional services. Um, before I was in research, when I like to say when I worked for a living, um, I uh, was in uh, operational roles in both consumer and defense electronics. So that operational background makes this topic uh, particularly fascinating to me. Um, uh, I, I admit to uh, bouts of cynicism from time to time because I've been doing it for so long, but uh, given the current pandemic situation and what I see our clients trying to do, it is uh, as relevant a topic as ever uh, for the industry. 
Thank you, Bob. Do you think Industry 4.0 and or 5.0 are scary for people? Do you think people who are not in the know like you and our, our next panelist, Tom Raftery, do you think they're saying, oh, jobs are going to go away? Well, they're already going away and had nothing to do with this. So what do you, do you think Industry 4.0 has that specter of, of fear or where are we going as much as it did, let's say, nine weeks ago? Just a, an observation. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know that the pandemic has changed. That certainly accelerated, and I've always sort of chuckled at the concern over robot overlords um, <laughs> because it's really it's really never been about the jobs. Uh, I upset some politicians on panels over the years with that statement, but I do think Industry 4.0 changes it from being labor-centric to people-centric. So. Um, where in the past operations were about, you know, having someone turning a screw in a production line. Now it's about having someone um, that is a quasi-engineer that knows how to uh, work in a sophisticated environment, uh, in a high-tech environment. So I think uh, the factory worker of the future looks like an IT worker today. So, uh, yeah, I I think the the... the the job displacement isn't as great as some people would have you think, but the jobs certainly change. And they may even get more interesting and more exciting and make people happier to be at work. I didn't say go to work, but be at work or be working. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. You can be provocative and controversial all you want here on Game Changers, and we love that. Bob Parker, I'm going to move around the table to Tom Raftery. Tom, promise me he's wearing a hat. I know he is. Tom is famous for his hats, and Tom is famous for being who he is. So, Tom Raftery, in case there's one other person in the world who doesn't know who you are, why don't you share that with us? Good morning. Good morning. Well, good afternoon, Bonnie. It's uh, three o'clock in the afternoon here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm based in the south of Spain. Uh, good morning to you. Um, yeah, my name is Tom Raftery. I uh, work with SAP. I'm a global vice president for SAP. Uh, uh, my title is um, futurist and innovation evangelist. So it's uh, it's kind of a weird title, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of a weird guy, uh, I guess. <laughs> I've always been a little bit uh, out there. Uh, non-conformist. Um, I have a, a weird, varied background. I've set up a number of businesses. Uh, I've been an industry analyst. I've been a futurist. The, the, the one common thread throughout all of the, the roles I've had throughout the years is I've always kind of been ahead of the curve. Uh, the software company I set up in the late 90s, early 2000s was a software as a service company, for example. Uh, the when I was an uh, industry analyst, I was always looking at the latest things that are out there, edge of the, edge of the, the kind of reading edge type stuff. That's, that's the kind of common thread going through it. And of course, now being a futurist and innovation evangelist, it's a similar kind of thing. I'm always looking at the, the out there things and hence this show today on Industry 4.0, which is again kind of bleeding edge. Thank you very much. How far is 4.0 bleeding into 5.0? I mentioned that also in the title, Tom. Where, where's your position on that? Are we in 5.0? Is it coming? Uh, it, yeah, it's coming, sure, but it's, it's still a long way off. We're, I mean, we're still very early in the rollout of Industry 4.0, never mind 5.0. It's like talking about um, you know, 6G telephony now when we're still just starting to roll out the 5G. So uh, we have a long way to go to get to Industry 4.0 without thinking about Industry 5.0, but that will come too. Very interesting. Thank you. What's your perspective on the the job situation I just discussed with your co-panelist, Bob Parker? Do you see anything scary? Will it be exciting for the factory worker, quote-unquote, of the future, which could be any day now? What do you think? 
I think I'm going to have to violently agree with Bob. Um, the... <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard that in years, Tom. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's exactly to his point. I mean, in, in analog factories, shall we call them, the, the factories that have not gone industry 4.0, a lot of the jobs can be, you know, picking up a box on one side of a conveyor belt and putting it on the other. And those kind of jobs are mind-numbingly boring. And of course, if you can get a cobot to do something like that, uh, then the, the worker is freed up to do something more interesting, you know, pick up a tablet and start uh, seeing quality levels on, on the products or whatever it is. And those kind of jobs are far more interesting. They uh, require a bit of use of the gray matter, which is obviously going to be far more fulfilling and makes the employees um, it augments the employees, shall we say. It makes them more productive. So I think that's always good. Thank you very much. My power backup just told me that I'm on backup for some reason, and there's no storm and no weather here, and I'm praying that I stay connected. Let's just keep going right along here. It should adjust <laughs> itself in a minute. Crazy weather here wherever we are. Thank you, Tom. Very happy to have you and, and your hat. Okay, now it's the time of the show, and I've asked my panelists in advance to please send me. I'm still on backup. Interesting. Uh, to please send me a quote that has nothing to do with the topic on the surface and to explain how the quote does relate to our topic. So Bob Parker has picked a quote from Mike Tyson, Michael Gerard Tyson, young man born in 1966. I think we can all agree that's young, gentlemen. He's an American professional boxer who competed from 1985 to 2005. He reigned as the undisputed world heavyweight champ and holds the record as the youngest boxer to win a heavyweight title at 20 years, 4 months, and 22 days old. I guess that's important, but they didn't put the minutes and seconds in. Uh, let's see. Uh, blah, 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 blah. He was the first heavyweight boxer to simultaneously hold WBA, WBC, and IBF titles and the only heavyweight to successfully unify them. Here we go. Here's the quote. Everyone has a strategy until you get punched in the face. Bob Parker, who's getting punched in the face and what was the strategy? Talk to me. One other note about Mike Tyson, he was in the movie The Hangover. I don't know if you know that, but very, very famous scene in that movie. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, it's a, it's a quote. I used to do um, crisis consulting, uh, turnaround consulting for business, and uh, it's a quote I used to love back then because that was the situation most people were in. They had a successful business strategy, and it was going along swimmingly, and some external event uh, punched them in the face, and... Uh, the strategy goes out the window, and now it's cash conservation and survival. So I feel it's apropos for the situation we're in, because certainly we have a lot of clients that are feeling that way about the pandemic, that um, you know, we do a lot of research on digital transformation. So people felt like they were, you know, um, had their strategy in place and were investing and moving along with digital uh, transformation, Industry 4.0 being a big part of that for a lot of our clients. And then all of a sudden this hit. But what we're finding is that um, having that digital investment, if you were ahead of the curve in investing in Industry 4.0, to borrow um, a term that's in the news, you flatten the curve. But in this Mm -hmm. case, you're flattening the recession curve. So having those technologies in place uh, especially operationally, create a level of resiliency that allows you to adapt to those changing circumstances. So um, those, uh, to, to take the boxing metaphor maybe a bit too far, 
those that weren't invested in Industry 4.0 had glass jaws, and those that did uh, were able to absorb the punch in the nose. Very well put, Bob, and I've discussed this with panelists on my other radio shows recently. Those who not only dipped their toe in the water of digitalization and digital transformation, but who dared to say we're putting money and people behind this. We're going to go where we haven't gone before. We're going to make that investment in time and money and people, and we're going to know it's going to take us somewhere good in the future. And here they are, and they're more prepared. Right, Bob? They're ready to pivot? Exactly right. Thank you. I like being exactly right once in a while. (laughs) Sorry. Tom, I'm weird that way. I knew I was going to enjoy the both of you, and I already am. Uh, now let's go to Tom's quote. Tom has sent us a quote that it's hard to know exactly where the punctuation goes, Tom, because I've seen it so many ways. But it's from Stephen Fry. Stephen, P-H-E-N, John Fry, also a young man born in 1957. I can say he's a young man. English actor, comedian, writer. He and Hugh Laurie are the comic double act Fry and Laurie, and they start in a bit of Fry and Laurie and Jeeves and Worcester. So there. Fry is known for his roles in TV. He was a recurring guest as Dr. Gordon Wyatt on the American crime series Bones. He's written documentaries, including the Emmy Award-winning Stephen Fry, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive. Okay, he is. he does have bipolar. He has appeared on game shows like just a minute, and I'm sorry I haven't a clue. We could call people sometimes that way, too. Uh, He's been a writer, four novels, three volumes of autobiography, and he read all seven Harry Potter novels for the UK audiobook recordings. He's a voiceover star. Here's the quote. This is an interesting quote, Tom. I'm going to read it and ask you to explain it, unpack it, as they say in the news. All the big words, like virtue, justice, truth, are dwarfed by the greatness of kindness. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. Tom, how'd you find this one? <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, it's something that's been with me for a while, to be honest, Bonnie. I'm not sure where I came across at first. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it speaks to that kind of thing that, you know, um, trying to walk in someone else's shoes, trying to put yourself in someone else's station, um, I've often heard it stated slightly differently to say that, you know, instead of getting mad at someone, take a step back and try and think, you know, what's gone wrong in their day to make them act the way they're acting. And of course, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's a, it's a time of increased stress and anxiety for absolutely everybody. Uh, you know, we all have family or friends or people that we're worried about. And, you know, this is not a time for, for anger and for things like that, although we're all stressed out and, you know, it can be easy to snap, but rather it's time to stop and think and attempt to be kind to, to people because you don't know where they're coming from. So it's, it's about empathy, I guess, more than anything else, not strictly speaking related to Industry 4.0 or the topic of today's conversation, but... Yeah, it's 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 one that uh, gave me goosebumps the first time I came across it as well. I appreciate that, and and Tom, whatever it's worth, I did on my technology revolution, the future of now show yesterday, talking about whether AI 
is currently and will in the future make us kinder, nicer, more empathetic, more respectful people to each Mm. other in our online life and offline. And we talked about the meanies and whether that would change. And my panel was a little bit optimistic, but I felt that there was still going to be a separate world of people who just wanted to be mean and caustic and critical, and they would be having their part of the, the... Twittersphere or wherever you want to call it, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook. And uh, they were optimistic that in general society will become kinder and nicer. And I actually titled the show R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me (laughs) with a call. Shout out to the late, great Aretha Franklin. Now I'm in tears. I can't cry on the radio. So thank you for your quote. I appreciate it. And and Tom, it really does speak to the humanity of where are we going. Uh, About two, three years ago, I, I asked my panelists on one of these Game Changers shows, if they thought the world was ready or they were ready for a robot CEO because there'd been something in the news about that. And I think that goes to the humanity of who we are and who we want to, who we choose to work with and who we want to speak with and and who we want to share our lives with in any way, whether it's at work and now work and, and home are blending because of where we are in the pandemic. So very thoughtful and uh, very appreciated. Thank you both for your interesting quotes. We are not going to take a break because this is just too much fun. So I'm going to do a shout out to Richard Howard and his team. Uh, Diane Pickett is part of that at SAP for putting this together. We really appreciate your choice of such interesting panelists, always. So now we're going to go to the part of the show where my panelists have sent me in advance discussion statements, not questions, but statements with their point of view, POV, on what is happening with our topic. So, Bob Parker, you're up first. I'm just going to read statement number one. And we're going to try and go in order unless there's an overlap or duplication. Why don't you speak to it for about two and a half minutes or so, Bob, and then I'll invite Tom to share his point of view. And then I'll pick one from Tom and I'll read his statement and he'll tell us. And then we'll ask Bob for his. And feel free, gentlemen, to, Tom, I'm going to use a paraphrase of what you just said, violently disagree with each other. It's okay. Here we go. So Bob Parker told me the following. He said, the nature of business operations is changing from a strategic approach based on productivity to one that centers on delivering on customer requirements. Bob, it's all yours. Yeah, so, you know, it can be a bit of a controversial statement when you make it because there is a mindset amongst operations executives that, in a long history, quite frankly, that I invest in technology to improve Productivity and productivity, as everyone knows, is output over input. So, if I can increase my output, my throughput of my operational assets, or I can reduce my inputs, it's a good investment. But what's happening today is operations for those that have embraced Industry 4.0, they view operations as a competitive mechanism. So, it's not about squeezing another 1% of availability out of a machine on a factory floor. It's about making that machine more versatile so that I can deliver on this increasingly complex set of customer requirements. In the digital economy, we are tailoring products, a product of one one customer, one individualized product, mm-hmm. and that creates an amazing challenge for operational executives to deliver on that promise. So where we see the separation of the men from the boys, to use an old, um, mm-hmm. probably politically incorrect statement, um, <laughs> is those companies that 
view their investment in Industry 4.0 as a way for them to deliver on, on customer promises in the digital economy are set apart in advance quicker than those that get into what I call um, proof-of-concept prison, uh, mm. where they're trying to do one particular AI uh, project or IoT project on one machine, and um, it just sort of uh, languishes in, in progress because you can't do them one at a time. You need a big vision in Industry 4.0, and you need to align it and calibrate it to those new very specific customer requirement. So I'll stop there and... and um, Thank you. Very, very interesting. Let's see what Tom Raftery has to say. Tom, join us, please. Sure, yeah, of course. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. And <clears throat> well said, Bob. Again, violently agreeing with you, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, no, that, the, the whole digitization of manufacturing is allowing for what we're calling mass customization and lot sizes of one. Uh, you know, it, it's no longer the kind of cookie-cutter manufacturing that we had of old. Uh, it, it, it kind of started off in the automobile industry, I think, really, probably some other industries and before that, but it went mainstream in the automobile industry where you could customize your car as you were ordering it and get it custom-made for you. And, of course, that's okay because it's a, it's a high-cost, big-ticket item. Uh, but now through digitization of manufacturing, uh, the costs are coming down, and so it's possible now to get even things like sneakers custom-made for people, and that, that speaks to the, the, you know, the experience or the learning curve, which allows you to drive down the cost of these things through economics. Um, the, 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 there's a great example, a great case study I'm aware of, of again, it's not a, a low-cost item, it's a motorbike Harley-Davidson, where the digitization of their factory meant that they went from 21 days to produce a custom Harley down to six hours. They, mm. they literally, uh, they, they built a new facility beside their old one. They had a brownfield site, so they were able to stand up a whole new manufacturing facility beside their existing one in two-thirds of the space of the existing one. And then, as I said, in that new place, they were able to build out their custom bikes in six hours as opposed to the 21 days it used to take them. That's a wow. I'm going to pose a question to both of you before I move on to one of Tom's statements. Today, we're hearing that in the pandemic that I think it's some automotive companies are now producing ventilators. And I just heard a case study of a restaurant wholesaler who decided, since the restaurants who were his customers were closed, decided to offer produce in a box with online orders and actual retail customers who would have been eating at those restaurants can now come to a warehouse door and contact free pick up boxes of fresh produce, which is keeping the wholesaler in business while the restaurants are closed and keeping people happy. You don't have to go and pick out the fruits and vegetables at a grocery store. So my question is, we're now in a, in a stage where whether we like it or not, companies that want to stay around, that want to be relevant and want to be in step with, with the, the new steps we're trying to take in this new, I call it the new not normal or abnormal, uh, they are having to pivot and they are having to think about a different type of customer. Bob, can you just comment on that briefly and then we'll see what Tom has to say. We're almost in the make for me right now because me is something else. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, I think the shifting, there's some great stories you mentioned, some of them the the uh, pivot to producing ventilators is, of course, prominent in the news. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a lot of examples of that, even in something as basic as uh, flour. Um, yes. As people went into quarantine, uh, 
they started baking, right? Bake, All of a bake, sudden, bake. Yeah, I'm home. I might as well bake <laughs> some cookies, right? And what happened was there was a severe flour shortage in grocery stores. But at the same yep. time, you know, Pillsbury and King Arthur and General Mills had excess inventory in the in the um, uh, food service supply chain. The problem was the restaurants bought 25-pound bags and you bought a one-pound bag in the grocery store, right? Yes. So they had to pivot and... and, and the, the companies that had more automation and Industry 4.0 concepts built into their supply chain were able to sort of yes. cross those lines that had always been sort of operated completely um, in, independently. And, and the other example that I like is 3M because they saw what happened with masks in the previous pandemic in Asia, Pac, uh, Asia Pacific, I think it was SARS, uh, the last SARS uh, pandemic in Asia, and they knew if it reached the United States or uh, other regions in any um, in any serious way that they had to be prepared. They actually went out and bought machines uh, and mothballed them. They just had them in storage, and they were able to double the production of N95 masks in about three weeks because they had in the. By the way, they had a level of automation in those machines that it, they could, uh, you know, um, turn them on and get them producing relatively quickly because they had a very repeatable, intelligent process built in. So um, your, your, your point is well taken. Uh, what this pandemic is showing, again, to my earlier comments, those that were already on that digitization path were much better prepared to make those sort of pivots. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let's get Tom in here. Tom, any other examples you want to give? These are all great. <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. I mean, I have a local example here, in fact, uh, based here in Spain. Uh, Airbus have something like 20 factories here in Spain. Uh, and um, in, those, in those factories, they have 3D printers, which they use for uh, making parts for their planes. And... Um, <clears throat> It, 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 you don't normally think of using 3D printing for making components for planes, but in fact, Airbus were a pioneer in this. They started doing it in in 2014, I think, is when they started, and 2015 is when they first flew a plane with a 3D printed component in it commercially, a commercial mm. plane. And of course, 3, 3D printing in planes is, is very, very useful because it uh, leads to a 90% reduction in uh, materials used and a 50% reduction in the, uh, the weight of the component. So, uh, and of course, weight is vital in planes. That the less weight you have, uh, then the less fuel you burn and the less carbon emissions you have. And uh, to, to, again, to Bob's point, what Airbus did with those 3D printers was they converted them from, you know, 3D printing components for planes into 3D printing uh, safety equipment, PPE for healthcare workers throughout Spain and, and beyond. I think they were exporting them beyond Spain as well. And I was also talking to uh, a woman called Isabel Leclerc, who is the supply chain manager for Cascades, who are a, a large, you know, toilet paper manufacturer. I, I, I think um, tissue paper or... Uh, they also make other uh, um, uh, things as well, specialty papers and things like that. But uh, Isabel was telling me that, you know, the toilet paper industry is a, a strange industry in that you have two 
separate and distinct markets which almost never cross over. And the two markets are the residential market, uh, you and I going down to our shopping center and buying a, a, you know, a bag of toilet paper and bringing it home. And the other market is the commercial and industrial, so the likes of schools and hospitals and hotels and those kind of things. And of course, the two types of toilet paper that are manufactured for the two different markets are separate as well. They're very different. Uh, you know, the, the kind of toilet paper you get in schools and universities and hospitals is different to the one you have in your home. So when the lockdown happened, and a couple of viral videos went out about people you know, getting into brawls in, in shops trying to get toilet paper, and you know, there was this global panic and everyone rushing to get some because people were going to be at home more and using their toilet at home more than they would if they were out at work during the day. So suddenly, uh, Cascades had to, do, had to figure out what to do, and what they decided was that they would do nothing. They would compete do the same as they always did, but their suppliers, or their, sorry, their customers would switch, and that's what happened. In fact, their customers switched uh, to um, selling, uh, the, the commercial industrial switched to selling to the residential market. So you had these distributors just swapping out who their customers were. So it, uh, so, you know, it, it, it speaks to agility, I think, is, is the yes. point. Um, you know, you have to be agile, you have to be able to turn on a dime, and it's only through the likes of digital technologies that you have the kind of transparency and the planning scenarios in place to figure out and see what's likely to happen and make adjustments according to that when it does. Thank you very much. And, Bob, I want to tell you that most of us who bake buy flour in a five-pound bag. Yes, King Arthur's one of my favorites. That's okay. And that they weren't just baking cookies, my dear. They were baking bread. And that means yeast was at a shortage. And there was pandemic pricing on one major retailer online. I think it was uh, a couple of pounds of yeast. I don't know who needs it in that quantity, but obviously retail, uh, commercial bakers, rather. And it was priced at a couple of hundred dollars. I happen to have five packets of Fleischmann's yeast yeast here in my refrigerator with a date uh, that's still usable through most of 2020, even into 2021. So if anybody wants to bid on the yeast packages. I'm, I made one pack. I made two, three, three loaves of, of challah, my favorite bread, and then I just didn't bake after that, but that was my pandemic baking. So I have yeast and I will not overcharge. So if anybody wants it, you know where to find me. Let's move on. Tom Raftery, I'm looking at statement number one. I think what I'm going to do is read a statement and have each of you explain it. And then if the other one wants to chime in, just jump in. Otherwise, let's go back and forth. So Tom says, making supply chains more transparent is also now imperative with respect to track and tracing, very popular term, and in many ways, because we're contact tracing people now, also in terms of the increasing importance of sustainability. Tom, why don't you take two minutes and talk about this, and then, uh, Bob, I'll pick one from you. Go ahead. Sure. Well, if we, if we think just of sustainability first, um, the ability to see the, for example, the uh, energy usage of devices that you're using in your factories, your machines, whatever, uh, and, and see which ones are using the most energy and maybe the ability to swap out parts that are energy intensive, uh, the ability to see down through your supply chain and see which of your suppliers has the highest or higher carbon footprint, which is difficult enough to do today, but is something that is coming, you know, you will be able to look down through your supply chain, see which amongst your suppliers has 
a higher carbon footprint and maybe make a choice of suppliers based on the carbon footprint of your of your suppliers because you want to make your own you want to make sure that your own scope three emissions are low so that's that's you know one way of doing it uh, it's just um, <clears throat> I, I said track and trace as well obviously visibility down through your supply chain is massively important because you want to be able to see when the goods are going to be delivered to your factory. You want to see when the goods you produce are going to be delivered to your distributors or your customers or whatever your model is. So all of this kind of thing is, is vital and it's only through the digital technologies where everything is connected and everything can talk to everything that you get those kinds of levels of visibility to see the energy utilization of, of your vehicles. Maybe you want to switch from... Um, fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles. I was talking to a company called Geotab uh, earlier this year, and they've come up with a new product whose name escapes me now, but it's a product that is for fleet managers. And when the fleet managers use this product, it scans all the data from all their vehicles, uh, all the uh, telemetry data, and it looks across the whole fleet of vehicles and it says, okay, this particular vehicle and this particular vehicle and this particular vehicle because of the um, profile of the miles that they do per day, it would make huge amount of sense to swap them out for electric vehicles, whereas these other ones wouldn't make sense. So maybe you want to start your electric vehicle journey by using by, by swapping these vehicles out first. So again, again, you know, getting the data from the vehicles, uh, seeing which ones are best to use uh, or which ones are best to, to switch to electric uh, makes you more sustainable and again is only possible through the likes of these digital technologies. Thank you very much, Tom. Bob Parker, I'm looking at you. Bob, you want to talk to Tom? Go ahead. I heard you. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, Tom, yeah. so, you know, on that, I've talked to your customer, Bumblebee, uh, about what they're doing with blockchain and the traceability of tuna. It's fascinating. You can, if you order tuna in a restaurant, you go on the app and you can see the fishermen in Southeast Asia that caught the tuna in the first place. But when I, I asked him the question, uh, the CIO of Bumblebee, are you going to open this up to your competitors so that it's the good, the good of the whole industry and we can see the provenance of all the tuna in the world? And he sort of laughed at me. Why would I do that? That's a competitive advantage that I can do this. But, but there's this, and this was pre-pandemic, the conversation. So I'm curious what your feelings are about, you know, how do we open that up so that, um, you know, there's another one called Food Trust that IBM is running that, the anchor tenant is Walmart. So do you think we ever move from these being done sort of a supply chain captain at a time, or do we get to the point where somebody like uh, SAP or an IBM are running a whole industry cloud platform for anybody to participate in? Hmm. Good question. Um, the short answer to that is I have no idea. <laughs> 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 I'll sell you a package of yeast. That might help. Go ahead. <laughs> what if I were to take a stab at it? Um, I think, yeah, I think, the, I think you've answered your own question a number of times there. there there's a number of possibilities, obviously. Um, one thing that, I mean, yeah, sure, if, if we were to roll it out and make it cloud-delivered for everyone to use, that would be one, one very uh, positive possibility. Um, I don't know if there are any plans to do that, um, but, you know, yeah, it, it would be a great answer. The other way to do it, though, um, might be through regulation. 
Um, it's, you know, there, there were very few cars in the beginning that had seatbelts until, until they were mandated and suddenly all cars, all new cars had seatbelts and same with things like catalytic converters and things like that. So, you know, things that make us safer over time uh, generally tend to be regulated into existence. So uh, possibly regulation might be one way of uh, getting this out or to, to your answer, uh, maybe we do it and make it available to everyone. Yeah, I think there's a, so it goes against my libertarian sensitivities to <laughs> see regulation as the vehicle for that, but, uh, but that's just me. Uh, not, your point was correct, but that's just me. I, I do think, though, just to close off the point, I do think there's this role in the market for ecosystem integrators that provide a sort of turnkey, maybe it's with inviting the regulators into the to, to the party as well. I do think there's a role for this kind of notion of an ecosystem integrator for your supply chain or your factories or your fleets. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think it's a, it's a role, one role SAP could play could be part of that, um, that, that market of providing those platforms. Thank you both. Good conversation. Good I know Richard Howells is listening and tweeting. And Richard, this is a great panel you've got here. And thank you to Diane Pickett as well. Bob Parker, I'm looking at statement number two. We're, we're covering some of your statements in the broad conversation, so I'm not worried about not covering everything. But let's go to number two. Bob Parker says something very important. There is a difference between complexity and complication. He says, mastering the inherent complexity of digital markets delivers competitive advantage but unnecessary complication or waste must be eliminated. Right now, this is even more important. Isn't that true, Bob Parker? Yes, absolutely. And, and it kind of goes to, relates to my first statement where I talked about tailoring the operations to delivering on the customer promises. And, you know, I hear, I, I get frustrated sometimes because clients talk, oh, I have to reduce complexity. I have to remove complexity. And then I stole that complexity versus complication from a client. So um, uh, I forget which client it was, so I can't give attribution. But they said that that's the way they separated it. It's a kind of a semantic game. But they said complexity is a reality. What we, what we have to deliver in the market on the customer expectations is complex. We're not going to reduce that complexity. We have to embrace it. Um, <laughs> they separated this concept of complexity from complication. And it's it's kind of a a bridge from the past to the present to the future because the, the, the complication, the waste, is what we focused um, all of our uh, continuous improvement efforts, Lean Six Sigma. That's what we were trying to do, and that still has to go on. Uh, we have to eliminate the waste, and, and, and you're right, Bonnie, in this era, even more so, we have to be doubly focused on that. But at the same time, we need to think about the Industry 4.0 investment that allows us to embrace the complexity and create a competitive advantage through our operation. So um, that's, uh, that's the, the main point of that uh, complexity versus complication. Thank you very much. Tom, any quick comment on complexity versus complication? Quick thoughts? Yeah, <clears throat> sure. Uh, it, it's, it's a good point, well made, and it's, it's you know... Um, <clears throat> I'm a, and this is going to sound weird now, but I'm a, I'm a Mac user and have been for a long time. Me too. And, uh, <laughs> there you go. And the reason for that is, you know, I want something that's easy to use. Um, you know, it, it's, for me, it's about the user interface, ease of use. I'm, 
I'm a simple person and I like things to be easy to use. I don't want to have to, you know, read through a 10,000 manuals to figure something out. I was having a conversation earlier today about a, a, a video platform I'm using uh, called eCam. And, I'm, you know, there's, an, there's one called OBS, which is also available, which is free and open source, but it's really complex to use. So I choose to pay for the eCam one because it's easier. Um, uh, you know, so if I think about Google... And it, this is no longer the case, but when Google, for the first, I suppose, decade of Google's search page existence, um, you just had the search bar, uh, you had the Google logo on top, you had the uh, find and I'm feeling lucky, I think, was the other button underneath it. But if you looked carefully, there was a little text link near the bottom which said advanced search. You clicked that and you could go in and you got this huge interface of lots of different bells and whistles you could tweak and you could do amazing searches. But 90% of the people never did that, probably didn't even see it or ignored the link. And But the power of the search you could get from going in there was incredible. So, very long answer to a very short question, but yeah, you can hide complexity, but it needs to be there. It's, it's, it's about presenting people with something that's simple but, but complex but not complicated to use. That's, that's, the, kind of, that's, that's the attitude I get to. That, that, that's, that's my take on it. Thank you very much, Tom. I've been a Mac user since 1988 when one desktop Mac and one little black and white printer cost 11,000 U.S. dollars. Don't even ask. You, you beat me by a year. My first Mac was 89. It was the Mac SE FDHD, and it had a 40-megabyte hard drive and one megabyte of RAM. There you go. And right now I'm in search of a new Mac, and I understand uh, Best Buy is out of inventory. Um, B&H Photo is out of inventory. Amazon will sell you the $5,000 Mac, iMac Pro, which I oh, might no. have to spring for. And Apple is three to four Ouch. weeks behind on delivery, and I'm having major hard drive corruption that's keeping me awake 24 hours a day right now. So I need a new Mac. I need a new Mac. I'm willing to spend it. I just have to find the thing. Anyway, Tom Raftery, I'm looking at statement number two and three. We're going to combine these, and let's make a quick answer here, and then I'll go back to Richard. Uh, Tom says, the requirement for physical distancing of employees will impact manufacturing lines configured for close proximity and require them to either reduce output, OMG, or increase automation, and that's an Industry 4.0 thing. EHS, that's Environment Health and Safety Solutions, will play a significant role here. And, Tom, I'm going to add that to statement number three. The coronavirus has hit supply chains hard and demonstrated the need for resilient, agile, and transparent supply chains of the type delivered by Industry 4.0 Technologies. I know we addressed that sort of, but I'd like combine both. Let's talk about the distancing of employees. That's the key here. Tom? Sure. Yeah, it's so we're in this pandemic and we're going to be in it for a while. We're not going to get a vaccine for 12 to 18 months because while there are some, you know, positive trials taking place, the amount of time it takes to get those trials to completion and then to scale up manufacturing to manufacture enough for, let's say, 5 billion doses, uh, it's, it's, it's going to take a long time. And you know, the, the, the rollout of the vaccine will take time as well because people will be prioritized and, you know, people who work on uh, lines in factories will be lower on the list of priorities, for example, than healthcare workers or people who work mm-hmm. in care homes or, you know, so anyway, we're, we're 12 to 18 months before 
you know, we have enough people vaccinated that they can be within physical proximity once more safely. So in the next 12 to 18 months, while we don't have that, we do have to maintain physical distancing in places like uh, manufacturing lines, which often have not been configured for such. And to deal with that and to make sure it, it isn't a risk we have, obviously to rule out things like environmental health and safety solutions, which makes sure that people don't come within, you know, two meters of one another or whatever it is in, in, in each particular place. Or if they do, and someone tests positive, that they're alert to kind of contact tracing built in. And you have sensors on, on people's maybe hats or belts or something, which warn them about proximity of others and record anyone who came into proximity for the likes of contact tracing purposes. Um, it's, it, it, it is, I mean, you said it yourself, it's the new abnormal, but it's, mm -hmm. it's something we have to deal with and get on with. And the other, uh, the other thing we're going to have to do as well is build more automation into these manufacturing lines, which haven't been automated before, to uh, deal with the fact that you, you, can have, you, you can't have as many people on the line as it would have been possible when, you know, people didn't have to physically distance. So... With reduced people on a line, you either, as I said in the statement, get reduced output or you get an increased number of lines. Maybe you have to build new lines if you have space. Maybe you can do that, but not everyone can do that. In fact, most uh, places wouldn't be able to stand up a couple of new lines and it would take time as well. So increased automation is probably the option for maintaining output while keeping people physically distant, that and making sure you have good EHS solutions in place to make sure that people, if they do come, in, or if they if they look like they might come within two meters of one another, warn them. If they do, log it and then report if there is an issue subsequently where someone tests positive. Thank you very much. Very interesting approach. Bob Parker, I'm going to move on to your statement number three. This is interesting. You say operations and IT organizations must work together through a new type of department that IDC, where you work, calls digital engineering. Interesting. Is this something that's widely held already? Is this something that's in the works part of 4.0 or maybe 5.0? Where are we on this, Bob? Yeah, I would characterize it as an emerging approach. Um, there's a long history in manufacturing of uh, the operational technology people being separate, very separate from the informational technology people, sort of a church and state. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm from corporate CIO. I'm here to help is one of the big lies of enterprise uh, existence. But that's changing because more and more, because of Industry 4.0, and the requirement to get the operational technology more integrated with what I'm doing in the supply chain, what I'm doing in my financial reporting, it's bringing them together. So, you know, it started with us calling it ITOT convergence. And, you know, we did a lot of research studies on how people were thinking about it. And there seemed to be this directional direction towards a, uh, a a combined organization that was made up of some IT, people with IT background and people with OT background. And operational technology, by the way, are things like programmable, programmable logic controllers, um, SCADA systems, those sorts of things, just to uh, clarify that. Um, and, and, but what we're finding in talks with our clients is they, that, that new organization, they want it to report to the chief operating officer, the COO, rather than the CIO, and they're starting to call it digital engineering, that this 
mm-hmm. uh, notion of uh, programming robots or setting up cobots that can learn on the fly and, and bringing along the legacy analog programmable logic controllers, but also making sure that it's secure, making sure that I can use cloud and edge, um, making sure that the data is integrated with the data I'm using in the supply chain is all under the purview of this new organization. We're seeing a real trend towards um, that type of organization as being necessary to realize Industry 4.0. Thank you, Bob. Tom, I'm going to sneak in number state, statement number four, and then, Bob, please get ready with your lightning round 60-second prediction, if you will. So, Tom, just quickly on this one, you say the importance of ecosystems. We already talked about those with Bob a little while ago, but the importance of ecosystems and common standards, that's what I want you to address, for the proliferation of Industry 4.0 cannot be overstated. Why don't I give you 60 seconds to not overstate it? Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen it, we've seen before the importance of standards. I mean, if you just look at uh, the computer in front of you, or maybe it's under your desk, I don't know, the USB um, ports on that that can talk to everything. You know, you, you can plug anything essentially into a USB port, and it can talk to your computer, and your computer can talk to it. And that's, that's the standard that has become the standard. Sure, it has changed slightly for USB 1, 2, and 3, or USB-C, but it's still a, a good standard across computers for, to, for them to talk to other components, other bits of hardware. Uh, and, you know, that's not as prevalent in the manufacturing organizations because in lots of manufacturers, you, they're using machines that are 10, 15, 20, 30 years old. And it's very hard for those machines to talk to anything. Maybe they don't even have a digital output. So uh, going forward, we're going to need to make sure that all machines manufactured can have a way of talking. And we need to make sure that the way of talking that these machines have can be understood by other machines, by robots, by computers, by whatever it is, that they're all speaking the same language. It's not one speaking Russian and the other speaking German and the other speaking English, you know, to, to use that kind of analogy. It's everyone speaking a common lingua franca. So everyone uses every machine using the same language, using the same standards, so everything can talk to everything and, and be completely understood. Thank you very much. And we completely understand you. And Bob Parker, it's time for you. I'm sorry, I had to say that. It's time for your prediction. I've got 60 seconds with your name on it, and then Tom is going to get his prediction ready. So what do you see coming up the pike down the road, whatever direction you are going these days, or just walking a back and forth line in your home office? Bob Parker, where is Industry 4.0 and 5.0? Where are they taking us? Go ahead, predict, please. I think the, certainly the pandemic is accelerating everything. So if we're at a New Year's Eve party um, celebrating the uh, dawn of 2024, we're going to look back and say Industry 4.0 has really enabled a complete reconfiguration of global supply chains in the way we think about factories that supply and production are going to get as close to demand as possible. And there will be two factors, the pandemic creating a priority around resilience, um, which demands that you be simple at the core, diverse at the edges, and that combined with the need of operations to be calibrated to customer demands rather than um, maximizing output. So a completely 
reconfiguration of global supply chains are going to happen uh, in the combined effect of the pandemic and um, digital transformation. Thank you. Very well put. As always, Mr. Raftery with the hat. Go ahead. Predict. I've got 60 seconds for you. (laughs) Can I just say what Bob said? Will that work? (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) wouldn't. No. (laughs) (laughs) He's still that from me. No, he, he, he's absolutely right. It, it's, you know, Industry 4.0 has been tootling along at a, at a kind of relaxed pace for uh, probably 10 years now. And suddenly we've got this burning platform that has come along with this pandemic, which means, you know, manufacturers have to automate or die. Um, I don't want to sound that dramatic, but, you know, in a lot of cases, it's that. You need to be agile now. You need to be able to respond to uh, sudden lurches in in your supply chain. I mean, we saw this year alone, we saw the impact, sudden sudden impact of Brexit. We saw the sudden impact of the Mm -hmm. oil shock when the price went through the floor. And then we had the pandemic. And if you are in an industry being affected by these things, suddenly you've got this kind of triad of massive changes happen and hit you very, very quickly. And if you don't have a resilient supply chain, if you don't have an agile supply chain, you are in deep trouble. So these, and these, these shocks are not going to stop happening. You know, they're going to, I don't want to say they're going to increase, but they're going to continue to happen at least. So you, this, this to, to Bob's prediction, absolutely right. In, this is going to give the industry 4.0 and the digitization of manufacturing a kick in the you-know-where. Thank you very much, and the you-know-where. And, Bob Parker, I think we can sum this up with the, the uh, predictions for both of you with the Mike Tyson quote you shared in the beginning of the show. Everyone has a strategy until you get punched in the face, and I think that's what we are talking about. How resilient and agile are supply chains and the people who are working in those companies need to be agile, need to be present and accounted for some respect, empathy, and kindness. I hope I'm covering all the bases. Bob Parker, just a pleasure always speaking with you on the radio. Tom Raftery, same thing. What a dynamic duo. Richard, you have to have them back on a show, or I'm going to poach them for my Technology Revolution show one of these days. So, Bob and Tom, look for an invitation. Richard Howells at SAP, great. He's been tweeting, and thank you very much, helping me get all these wonderful statements from the panelists onto Twitter so people can see how brilliant they are. Diane Pickett at SAP, thank you so much for the wonderful job you're doing. My engineer extraordinaire, Aaron Keller at World Talk Radio Voice America, the Business Channel, thank you. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt, even if your car, like mine, is getting three months to the gallon. Yes, it is. I filled up for 27 bucks the other day. It's usually Forty-five, and I'm not going anywhere. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Bob Parker at IDC, just like Tom Raftery at SAP, and just be smart, be safe, stay well, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Changing the Game with Industry 4.0 in the Intelligent Enterprise, presented by SAP, the best run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.